1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11, reading to the end of the chapter. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject to the Lord's sake for e- to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So you may wonder at the title I've given this sermon, God's Plan to Take Over the World. The kingdom of God that Christ and his apostles preached has never been advanced by human means. Not by a battle won, not by a vote referendum, not by a letter campaign, not by returning to our early moral values, not by polling or political machinations. No, none of these things has ever sufficed to bring about the kingdom of God. God has advanced his kingdom to cover three quarters of the earth through the methods that Peter gives here. I want you to think with me about the situation that these Christians that Peter's writing to, the situation that they were in, scattered in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. They're exiles, verse 1 of chapter 1. They've been grieved by by various trials, verse 6 of chapter 1. And soon, they'll be under full persecution. And we know this from historical records, but we also can see this from what Peter is writing here. He's preparing them for suffering. In our text today, he tells them that the Gentiles will speak of them as evildoers. 
He tells them how to respond to unjust masters. And he even says that Christ has given them an example of this, how to suffer injustice. And Jesus will shortly give these same churches a letter through the Apostle John telling them that persecution is coming. Jesus spoke this to John in the Revelation. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And those are all cities in the provinces that Peter has mentioned as who he's writing to in this letter. And later in that letter, Jesus speaks this to one of the churches. I know your tribulation. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. For ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And after this, there will come a time of great tribulation for Christians under the Caesars. And Peter knows that he himself will be killed in much the same way that his master was. Jesus told him so after the, after the resurrection. When he met with Peter, the Sea of Galilee, said, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John gives us a, an explanation of this. John says, This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. So I don't want us to make the mistake of forgetting that this letter is written to Christians who have to live in a hostile world. The commands we see here were not written to those in an ideal situation. These commands apply to the worst situation. And I want you to see this because if you think that Peter is writing to Christians in some peace-loving time who had neighbors who loved the Lord and tolerated them and thought well of them, then you won't think it applies in a time when Christianity is mocked and reviled. But we need to remember as we ourselves now enter more into what has been called a post-Christian era in Western history, when God is mocked and Christianity is obstructed by all the institutions of culture, we need to remember that Peter and his readers had it way worse than us. So we can see that what Peter wrote to them, who were under severe persecution, can also help us. This is a message from God for the church in a world that is hostile to the gospel. So let's look at it together. Starting in verse 11, we have this new section of commands. The last time we looked at 1 Peter, we were seeing how our identity was found in being Christians, in being chosen by God in being a new people, royal priests, his holy possession. And so now Peter says, 
because you are God's people, because you have now received mercy, he says, now I urge you, do these things. You could call them marching orders for the Lord's army. Now there's a lot, there's a lot of commands just shoved right into this short section of text. But I want us to focus in on the purpose statements. Now let me give you an example of what I mean. So Peter says, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now this is really straightforward. I I don't need to explain what that means. Keep your conduct honorable. I could use more words, but they wouldn't say more. But now let's look at the second half of verse 12. So that, and that's where we get the purpose statement, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Most children have a really innate sense of justice. You know, one of the first sentences I think that most kids learn is, that's not fair. I never really outgrew that. If somebody were to punish me for something I didn't do, I'd be fine taking the pain, taking the punishment. But what I would have a lot harder time doing is taking the blame. I'd want to argue my case and prove that I'm not the one who did the wrong. Because I just don't want people to think that I'm bad. Now, in many cases, it is okay to try to clear up a misunderstanding like this. Because we should seek for real justice that is concerned with finding out the facts and making a determination based on them. But, what we see here is when we are called evildoers because we're Christians and we're doing good, our first response should not be to argue with our accusers. At least not argue with our voices. God says here that our good deeds will speak on our behalf. And even the unbelievers who are accusing us and maligning us, even the unbelievers, because of our good deeds, will be forced to glorify God because of them. Now I've basically just given you the whole sermon. Because it's just going to keep going from here. Let me summarize this point. Unbelievers will accuse Christians of doing evil, but Christians' good deeds will show that accusation to be a lie, and God will be glorified through it all. Now, Peter is going to take that general principle and apply it to two specific situations, and then he's going to give us an example of that principle in action. Now, the first situation is how Christians act as subjects of their government. Again, the commands he gives here 
are really quite straightforward. He says, be subject to every human institution. And now that's institution in the sense of governments, kind of an old sense of the word institution, not in the new sense of any old club. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So you're free to obey and to do good. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And as an aside, if Peter could command Christians to honor the emperor who was killing them, we can learn to honor our government. Not because it is inherently worthy of some special place, but because God set it up. He says that living as servants of God is right in the center of this whole section. That's why. We honor the governing authorities because they are there by God's order. But this doesn't mean that we allow them to usurp the place of God. I mean, Caesar claimed to be God, but Peter absolutely does not allow for such a possibility. And yet, Peter can still honor him in his proper place under God's authority. So if the government tries to tell us what is ultimately true or false, good or evil, and prescribes duties of religious worship to itself, like the Roman Caesars did, we can gladly say as Christians, that is God's place, not yours, but we will obey the laws that you have given, and we will honor you as someone who God has placed in authority. And why? Why should we? Well, again, let's look at what is the purpose statement. In verse 15, we have the word for. Again, that's, that's a cue. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, I don't know, I didn't look it up, how many millions or hundreds of thousands of dollars have been spent on books that claim to teach you how to find the will of God for your life. But you don't need to go to them. It's right here. Do you want to know God's will for your life? He says it right here, completely plain. This is the will of God. Now, it may not be what you want to hear, but that doesn't mean it's not true. And maybe you'll say, okay, but I want something specific. You know, maybe you just got a job offer and you want to know, is it God's will for me to take the job or to keep my old job? And the answer is, this is the will of God. Do good. Whichever situation, whether it's taking the new job, keeping the old job, whatever situation you can do good, and then put to silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good, that's God's will. And what if you say, okay, well, I could, I, I could see how I could do good in both. Well, then you found yourself in the place where God's will is for you to pick one and do it. You decide. 
because God has given you a brain and a book and a people and the freedom to make that choice yourself. So now I've just destroyed half of the Christian book industry. So now that we're done with that, let's look back at the second situation now that Peter gives here. Servants being subject to masters. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And that's the whole command. There's explanation and there's application in here, but it's a really concise command. And you may think, well, how does that relate to me? Well, the word servants here, it's not the word for slaves. It's the word for domestic workers. You know, consider butlers, chefs, maids, gardeners. So, this is a lot more like an employer-employee relationship. So this is really applicable to us. We're all employees, or we all have employees. What does, it, what does Peter tell us to do? Be subject. Put yourself under their authority and listen to them. He even says to respect them. Respect them. Not just the good ones, but respect the ones who are unjust. And now this was before labor laws and OSHA and unions and minimum wage. You know, a master could pretty severely punish a servant. Physically and was even expected to in some cases. So again, we have it way better now than they did. And yet, if your employer is unjust to you, what does Peter say as a Christian you are to do to them? Respect them. And respect isn't something that you do only when they're in the room. Respect them when you're talking with your coworkers. Respect them when you're using the company copier. Respect them by not grumbling about them, by accepting that God has placed them in authority over you. Because God is the one who has set this up. If you respect only those who respect you, what reward is there in that? If you love only those who love you, what reward is there in that? But here, look at the purpose statement again. Verses 19 and 20. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? That is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Doing good and getting beaten for it. And enduring is a gracious thing in the sight of God. How? Peter says it twice even. The very beginning and the end, he bookends this with it. And the answer brings us to the final point I want to make in the sermon. But first, let me just recap a little bit. So I summarized, I said the whole thing is this. Unbelievers will accuse Christians of doing evil. But Christians' good deeds will show that accusation to be a lie, and God 
will be glorified through it all. And we saw that Peter took that general principle and applied it to how Christians are to respond to unjust suffering as subjects of government and how they respond to unjust suffering as subjects of their masters, their employers. We're to endure it. And it is gracious for us to do so. It is a gracious thing to endure unjust suffering because that is what Christ did. I'm going to read that section one more time. And I just want you to to look at it and just listen. Because as I've been saying, this whole section is very plain. It's very clear. What, What Peter has written here may be difficult to obey, but it is not complicated to understand. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. That's why it's gracious. We can follow in Christ's steps by doing this. That's gracious. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Consider this. What did Christ come to do? We know from the Great Commission, Christ came to fulfill all the Old Testament promises of God's kingdom filling the earth, of the glory of God covering the earth as waters cover the sea, of the nations coming and bringing their tribute to Jerusalem, of the offspring of Abraham inheriting the world. And this is how it happened. This is how Christ did it. This is how Christ conquered the world. He endured suffering from sinners, trusting himself to God. And God highly exalted him. Gave him the name above every name. He is is the begotten son of Psalm 2. Where the Lord says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. He is the Lord of Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And it was done this way. And God has not changed how he does things. 
Christ gave us an example of how to accomplish the gospel, filling the world. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In that context, Zechariah 4, it's about Zerubbabel coming back from Babylon and how in the world is the kingdom that was just completely obliterated and destroyed, how is it going to come back? How, are we, how, how could we possibly, we're so few in number, how could we possibly remain? How could we possibly build back up? How could the promises of God possibly happen? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord who has all the armies, the multitudes, the thousands and millions of heavenly angels at his command doesn't swarm through the earth and destroy it. But by his spirit, he comes. And the heart of stone that is dead, that hates Christ and his kingdom, that reviled him, is taken out, and the heart of flesh upon which God's word is written is given. What Caleb read at the beginning, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. It doesn't become the power of God. It's not might be the power of God. It's not if you accept it, it's the power of God. It is the power of God for salvation. And it's through the foolishness of the word preached. It's through the foolishness of Christians who suffer injustice. And instead of saying, my rights, or give me justice, or don't revile me just because I'm a Christian, or you don't understand, instead obey their Lord. And when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Rejoice and be glad in that day. So Jesus conquered all the world by patiently enduring suffering. He conquered the world by entrusting himself to God. And his church has been given those same means. Let us pray that God would strengthen us to continue in it. Jesus Christ, you have given us an example. You you were stricken, smitten, and afflicted. You were pierced crushed, he died on the tree, broken for our transgressions. You had no sin of yourself that you should suffer, but you took the sin of your people. Not only did you receive 
all the injustice that we had to throw at you. But you received all the unrighteousness of our sin and given us your righteousness. You received all the shame of our sin and have given us your acceptance. You were bound with all the slavery of our sin and have given us your freedom. For you destroyed death by your death. You have made us alive by your life. You are worthy of all blessing and honor and glory and power and riches and might. And so, Lord, make us instruments of your will. May we be empowered to bring your gospel to people, to suffer and endure, trusting ourselves to your perfect will and your loving care. Oh, Jesus, help us. We love you. We praise you. You are mighty to do it. Amen.